Welcome to God's Planning, Contemplative Preachers, Contemporary Age. Each week, join the Dominican Friars as they consider all things Catholic. Welcome to God's Planning. My name is Father Bonaventure, and I'm joined by Father Gregory Pine. Father Gregory, how are you doing? I would say that I am doing well. Okay. I can say that cautiously, but optimistically. And let's check in, as usual, with Thomistic Institute. What are you guys up to? What are we up to? Well, let's see. Um, we finished our first semester of programming, uh, a lot of on-campus events, a handful of new chapters starting at different universities throughout the U.S., and a couple of new ones in England. Um, so we just started, we're, we're planning our first events, or we just planned our first events at William & Mary, at Fordham, at UC Santa Barbara, and other places such like. So that's exciting. And then continuing to visit the different campuses. So I uh, have some visits queued up for University of Arizona, University of California, Los Angeles, and Santa Barbara um, at the end of January. So looking forward to both of those visits, which will be delightful. And then things proceed apace with Aquinas 101. So we moved from the philosophy section into the Summa section proper. So we're about halfway through the course at this juncture with videos still coming out twice a week. Is it too late to join Aquinas 101 right now? Wow, that's such an excellent question. I was hoping you would ask that question. Okay. Um, I would say that no. It is. You know what? I'm just going to affirm it. It is not too late to join Aquinas It's never too late to join Aquinas It is never too late to join Aquinas oh, 101. Uh, and your, uh, your, your membership in Aquinas 101 is available for three easy payments of $0.00. And zero cents. Mm-hmm. Um, but we can prorate that for you. And okay, so it'll be $0.00. $0. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, so yeah, it's free. You get two emails a week, Tuesday and Thursday. You learn a little bit about St. Thomas, his philosophy, his theology. If you find some of the lessons overwhelming, just skip them and keep going. It'll be great. Um, but a great way to kind of get tuned up on what the church thinks about um, the life of reason and the life of faith. And what so far do you think is the most important lesson for today that you've been doing in Aquinas 101? Like mm. what, you know, what's the most beneficial thing that Thomas had to say in, in the lecture so far? So I think uh, the second video, it's kind of heartbreaking okay. to say that because then it's all downhill from there. Yeah. But the second video is St. Thomas Aquinas on faith and reason, and it's really excellently done. The basic point of which is that um, the Lord uh, speaks to us in Revelation, and then we have a mind with which to access his Revelation. And uh, that mind can operate in a natural way or can operate in a supernatural way. And whatever we discover, if it is true cannot be in conflict. So we don't have to fear that our knowledge of Scripture means we have to deny the kind of like very obvious findings of modern science, mm. nor do we need to think that, um, you know, like being a scientist means you can't be a person of faith. Rather, the two are harmonious, and that by faith and reason, as if by two wings, we mount up to the contemplation of the truth. So I think that one, St. Thomas on faith and reason is a really excellent place to start. Yeah, and to be honest, and this isn't entirely by fiat, but that is a perfect segue into what we were going to talk about today. Get out. Yeah, because... Who saw that coming? We generally think of faith and reason in terms of uh, theology versus then the modern sciences, biology, physics, those kind of things, you know, little molecules spinning around and F equals MA equations that scare people in high school. Mm. But, of course, science can be said in many ways, and we can also have the science of modern history Mm. accounts, especially with critical methods and blah, blah, blah. So we thought we'd do today is look at what St. Thomas has to say about the historical Jesus. Nice. We'll talk about historical Jesus because it's a topic that comes up a bit. Um, listeners might be familiar with Bart Ehrman and uh, current historical Jesus stuff, John Dominic Crossan, Marcus Borg. Anyone who publishes works that basically say 
we know almost nothing about Jesus except that he lived and he died and that sort of thing. And readers, especially if they're familiar with uh, Ehrman, and he writes a lot of books about things we can't trust the scriptures and all of this sort of thing, stand in a line or tradition of looking at the scriptures as if they're just any other book and looking at Christ's stories in there and being super skeptical about them. So we thought we'd talk about, well, what does Thomas have to say about the historical Jesus? Does he think it's important? And that sort of thing. So um, this traditionally comes from the Enlightenment, I think, basically. Mm-hmm. Post-Enlightenment in the about 1700s, uh, early 1800s, you get this whole German movement of looking at historical sources and writing these lives of Jesus. So you might be familiar with uh, Hermann uh, Remaris. And Albert Schweitzer, of course, in the 1900s, writes 1906, writes The Quest of Historical Jesus. These books that go over what can we possibly know about his life and this sort of thing. And as in general, a lot of people are skeptical and say we can't really know much about it at all. And they'd like to make a distinction between the Jesus of history. Mm-hmm. So this man who wandered around, Jesus of Nazareth, you'd say, yeah. who wandered around. And then versus the Christ of faith. Mm-hmm. So the fact that some people believe that he's God, that kind of thing. And there's like this big separation between that um, in, in the scholarship, particularly in the Protestant world, but even the Catholic world kind of got involved in this. Now, Dominicans have, have some relation to this, too, from the Ecole Biblique, right? You know mm-hmm. something about, um, about the—we have some professors there and some Dominicans. So um, Father Anthony Jambroni is really important in this as well. But um, what would you say— is a relation between Jesus of history and the Christ of, of faith. What do you take to that? To, to yeah. Mean? So I think that, you know, to bring this back to the distinction between faith and reason, mm-hmm. I think that the Enlightenment preoccupation was getting behind our faith commitments and trying to ground our faith commitments on reason. Mm-hmm. So whether those be like ethical considerations, right, or whether they be considerations of, you know, like worship, um, it seems that a lot of Enlightenment philosophers we're of the mind that a lot of faith commitments were kind of naive, you know, like Pollyanna-ish almost. Mm-hmm. Uh, like the the simple pious believer doesn't really know what he knows, nor does he in fact know, but rather he's just been sold a bill of goods, and so it's the responsibility of the real historian, you know, to ground his belief on something more substantial, namely the deliverances of reason, mm-hmm. and therefore to save religion from its superstition. Um, And it's, you know, it's kind of deception of uh, the masses. And so what you see often in these discussions is a real skepticism as regards faith, that faith could actually afford us any real knowledge of God or Mm -hmm. the things of God. And then a real kind of inflated sense about the strength or efficacy of reason, as if to say that you just need to put your mind to it and you can access the truth of anything there is to know. But um, it strikes me that in the subsequent dispensation, neither of these claims have really held up. So it, co- commonly in this conversation, you have the Christ of history, or you have the Jesus of history versus the Christ of faith. So the Jesus of history being the man who actually born was born and died, and then the Christ of faith being all of the subsequent tradition mm-hmm. that grew up around that individual, yeah. a kind of mythology almost. And oftentimes this distinction is drawn as a way of sundering faith discourse from historical the discourse. Reason, yeah. Now, you might say, um, some might say, well, you know, like I can't know anything about the historical Jesus, but it doesn't matter because we really care about is is who we worship on Sunday 
and who we talk about and, you know, Christ, the one we pray to and all this stuff. So that, you know, what really happened back then, 2,000 years ago, you know, that doesn't really matter, right? Because it's really about the spiritual kind of aspect, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, I mean, do you think that sounds like a reasonable thing? Do, you think, do we Catholics, should we, should we just say, well, look, we have the dogmas and all this, and you can leave the history stuff to, the, to others, um, but we're fine with that. Yeah, so the First Vatican Council, it, it, it kind of admonishes us from espousing a position that lies too far to the one direction then too far to the other. So mm-hmm. in the one direction, there's rationalism, yeah. where we think that only reason can supply us with valid knowledge, and faith can really offer us very little. But on the other side, there's fideism, which says that we can only really believe the deliverance is of faith and that our reason is so very fallen, it's so very darkened by sin and ignorance that we can't even have access to Mm -hmm. our own interior states, much less to the truths of God. So we need to content ourselves with just um, assenting blindly to the propositions of the faith. But the, the First Vatican Council actually rules that out as well. So on the one hand, we have to navigate past the Scylla, of rationalism, and on the other hand, we have to navigate past the Charybdis mm-hmm. of fideism, because what we think is that we can actually have knowledge, historical knowledge of Christ, right, which doesn't undermine our faith, but actually bolsters it. Mm-hmm. So that way, what we have communicated to us in the scriptures, in the tradition of the church, um, in the church's teaching magisterium, it arises from an historical event. So... Ratzinger will say in Deus Caritas says that being Christian is not the result of an ethical choice or a lofty ideal, but it is an event, an encounter uh, with a person that in, like imparts to life a new horizon in a decisive direction. Mm-hmm. So we're very much event-based people as yeah. Christians because if Christ was not born, if, if God did not become man, and if he did not suffer, die, and rise, and ascend to the right hand of the Father, then our faith is in vain and our preaching is in vain. And we are not, in fact, saved by the blood of his cross, but rather we continue to live um, under, or kind of like labor, under the delusion of ignorance and that what we can await in the end is is not heaven, but rather, at the best, a kind of annihilation. Yeah, I think, I mean, Pope Benedict XVI, and maybe people have have read this, I hope they have, he wrote those, that trilogy, well, sort of two books and then a small book on the infancy, but the story of Jesus of Nazareth. And it strikes me in there, he's someone who grew up in a Protestant world in a way, in Germany, in a Lutheran kind of world, and he deals very very well and sophisticatedly with the historical scholarship or historical critical methods, but he says that we can't just stick to that, but also actually to look at the theological background of things, which is not to, again, separate out the Christ of, of faith from the Jesus of history, but to ground one on the other. So he comes out and he says that he, he trusts the Gospels and that there are, and that we could only have theological claims about Jesus that are based on historical claims. So that Jesus is the Son of God, for instance, has something to do with the fact that this man didn't stay in the tomb, but was actually physically raised. Those aren't separated from them. So he, when he writes his life of Jesus, he's doing it from both these together. And I think that's such a Catholic way to do things. It's also related to how we understand Scripture in general, because the tradition talks about different senses of Scripture, you know, we've got the, 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 the spiritual senses, so the moral sense and the astrological sense and, and the, the allegorical sense. So these, you know, the beautiful readings the church fathers do. But of course, there's always the literal sense um, that, that is there as well. So what does it actually mean? And I think Thomas Aquinas does a, a beautiful reflection as someone who we tend to think of 
anyone pre-1900s just cared about the spiritual senses, but Thomas spent a lot of time with the literal senses, right? Yeah. So St. Thomas has a really profound doctrine of the senses of Scripture. Um, so he'll say, like, the literal sense is what the words mean. So it's what God and the human author intend to convey. And that, that sense can have many valences, right? So we just read in the Advent season from the book of the prophet Isaiah a few times, and there you have one of the most beautiful prophecies ever foretold, namely that a virgin will conceive and bear a son, mm-hmm. and that uh, we call him Emmanuel. So the human author might mean that that refers to one of the sons of Hezekiah, right? Mm-hmm. It might refer to, who, what are all the names? It's like Shear mm-hmm. and then the third one, and then it's whatever. It, it might refer to an historical person in the 8th century before Christ. Um, but because of the way that God can enlighten the prophet's mind, it might also refer to Christ. And there's nothing to say that he can't refer to both of them. Mm-hmm. And also because God is intending to communicate something in the sacred page, uh, obviously, because he's the principal author, you know, we know that it that it does refer to Christ. So the literal sense is what the words refer to. And then the spiritual sense, which is on, on Thomas's understanding threefold, it's what the things signify. Mm-hmm. So what the very things in Scripture signify. So the first sense, it goes by a couple of different names, the allegorical sense or the typological sense. It's when things in the Old Testament refer basically to things in Christ or things in the New Testament. And then the next sense is like the moral sense or the tropological sense where it's when things signify how we ought to live, not just in the sense of like, do this, don't do that, but when the very realities themselves communicate a shape of life. And then the final is the, um, called the uh, anagogical sense, anagogain, meaning leading up. Um, And that's what communicate, like like the things described actually communicate something about heaven. But St. Thomas thinks, contrary to some voices in the tradition, that every, every passage in Scripture has a literal sense, and that mm-hmm. you cannot have a spiritual sense apart from a literal sense, because you can't really have um, some disincarnate spirituality. Mm-hmm. So for him, it's, it, the, the principle is an incarnational principle, that the very words communicate things, and then the things communicate further things. But you start with what you have, what, what lays ready to hand, what is actually communicated. Um, and so... In this, you know, like particular setting, we can say like like the spiritual sense of the Old Testament just is the literal sense of the new. Mm-hmm. That the whole Old Testament is written with an eye towards the Christ who is to come. The whole Old Covenant is written is written with an eye towards the New Covenant, which is to replace our hearts of stone with hearts of flesh and to have a law written on our hearts, which is the very grace of the Holy Spirit poured in. And the, to me, what's fascinating about this is that. We think of these lives of Jesus written in the in the 18th, 19th, 20th century, that that's when people only cared about his historical life. But because I think St. Thomas has such a profound doctrine of the literal sense of Scripture and this incarnational principle that it actually matters that Christ came and matter in this way, um, and that through that we also get the, the divine aspect of things, that he has a little, it's almost like, I mean, you could, I guess you could publish it separately, but it'd be strange. He has a small historical life of Jesus in the Summa Theologiae, where he reflects on what actually happened in Christ's life and asks questions about that. And the, knowing Christ's historical life is not separate from knowing principles of his incarnation or any of his, his miracles, per se, but and about him and his hypostatic union, but actually it's part and parcel of it. It's required. So that by reflecting on the historical life of Jesus, we actually get into his theological life and we get into the spiritual things. So I want to take a just a quick break here. I want to come back and then take a look at, d- dig down a little bit and see what 
when Thomas writes his life of Jesus, uh, as it is, what he says about him and what we can do with that. So we'll be back in just a moment. This is God's Planning. Get up to date on all our latest episodes at opeast.org slash godsplaining. All right, we're back on God's Planning. We're talking about St. Thomas Aquinas and his version of the historical Jesus, his life of Jesus, which is found in the Summa Theologiae in the third part. Now, because you're one of the uh, assistants at Thomistic Institute and Aquinas 101, you want to situate for us exactly where this whole life of Jesus fits in quickly in the uh, the whole schema of the Summa Theologiae. Not that anyone listening to this hasn't read the whole thing and doesn't know the whole thing, but just in case someone hasn't. Dig, absolutely. So let's see. The Summa has a basic shape to it, namely that things go out from God and that things return to God. So this is sometimes referred to as the exitus reditus schema. Exitus meaning going out from and reditus meaning returning to. So the Summa is arranged as a story of the going out of things from God and then the returning of things to God. So it's divided into three main parts, and then the second part is divided further into two parts. So what you have is the first part, the first half of the second part, the second half of the second part, and then the third part. And in the first part, you basically have God and the things going out from God. So the first 43 questions basically are about God, the one God, the the triune God. And then you talk about creation, evil, angels, man, and you know non-spiritual creation, and then how God is provident and, and governs those things. That's basically the first part. And then the second part is about our return to God in the moral life. Mm-hmm. So the first half of the second part describes, you know, like beatitude and then human action, and then the passions, like our emotional life, and then habits, virtues, vices, sin law and grace so just to give you those big ticket items the main Mm -hmm. principles there and then the second half of the second part it describes the the individual virtues Mm. which are the principles whereby our interior lives are ordered back to god and the reign of grace extends into every nook and cranny of our spiritual life so there you talk about faith hope and charity and you talk about prudence justitude fortitude and temperance and then there's like a little treatise at the end that describes the charismatic gifts the diversities of life and then uh, states of perfection, which is like Mm -hmm. religious life and episcopacy. And then you get to the third part, which describes basically the principal instruments that Mm -hmm. affect this transformation, which bring about our returning to God. And they are Christ and the sacraments. We can kind of add the church because that's uh, Mm -hmm. implicit within his description of Christ and the sacraments. So the first 59 questions of the third part are about the Lord Jesus, and then questions 60 through 90 about the sacraments. He actually put down his pens at the end of that section in December 6, 1273, because of a mystical vision that he had, which Mm -hmm. led him to say that compared with what I have seen, all I have written is as so much straw. And so one of his friends and secretaries arranged some things at the end of the book to kind of fill out his discussion of the sacraments and the last things. Um, But kind of zooming in then on on the treatise on the life of Christ, it's divided into two main sections. And the first half is about the incarnation and like the implications of the incarnation. Mm -hmm. And then the latter half, is a life of Christ. So starting, I guess, with question maybe 27 and going through 59, mm-hmm. you start with the conception of Christ and move all the way to his being seated at the right hand of the Father in glory. Mm-hmm. And you just kind of proceed with him through these different events narrated in the Gospels with an eye towards how Christ is saving. 
So mm-hmm. it's not so much, it's not doing modern historiography. No, you know, right. he's not comparing the Gospels to like Philo or Josephus. But what he is doing is he's trying to examine not merely how Christ is teaching or performing miracles or what the parables mean, but he's trying to examine how is it that this is all to be understood as a saving act. Yeah, and the beauty of it is you would think that he, if he was just doing pure theology now, we think, oh, well, he just talked about the incarnation and maybe some, something's involved with that and how, God, how Christ is God and man and all those heavy-duty technological terms. But he actually spends so much time on just the daily life of Christ, how he lived, what he did, and how that is important for saving stuff. So that's what, you know, it's good to drill down on a bit in the questions. These are in the 30s through the 50s of the of the Tertia Pars, the third part of the Summa. And he asked some, I think, just fascinating questions. Do you have any particular uh, thing that, that you find most interesting there about the, the, the life, the bodily life of Jesus um, that is good for, important for salvation? One of my favorites is there's a question devoted to the manner of Christ's life. Mm-hmm. He asks specifically why he chose to live as he did. And here you can take into account like why he chose to be born uh, in a the poor one, family, yeah. right? Yeah. Why he chose to call disciples as he did, why he chose to be just so poor and not more poor, mm-hmm. um, why he didn't write a book, mm-hmm. why he preached, um, and why he lived this this kind of religious life to use terms that are you know found in the subsequent tradition and basically there the main point is that it's it's because he's about a work of salvation so like earlier in the treatise on the hypostatic union he asks whether christ assumes defects like mm-hmm. the defects associated with human sin and he says yeah he he assumes those defects as associated with the common sin of human nature so this would include like hunger and thirst this would include uh, pain and bodily death but he says he doesn't assume defects that would actually pose an obstacle to his securing of salvation. So like ignorance, for instance. So Christ came to um, kind of disabuse us of our ignorance. And if that's the case, then he himself can't be ignorant because an ignorant man can't save an ignorant man. Mm-hmm. So it's not fitting that Christ himself be ignorant. And so he wouldn't have been ignorant. He does the same thing too with grace. That Christ has the grace of, well, he's God, right? So he just is the divine life. But then he has the grace of the hypostatic union, so that grace that unites his his human nature to his divine nature. He has um, what we call uh, habitual grace, so the grace that floods his soul. And then he has capital grace, the grace that floods us, his church. And he, he says it just wouldn't make sense for Christ to have deficient grace, because what's he doing? He's giving us grace, and you need grace to give grace. Mm-hmm. So, like, when, when he's asking the question about the manner of Christ's life, he's, he's doing so with a similar preoccupation to examine why precisely these things and not other things. And the, and the answer that he always happens upon is because the Lord loves us and because this is the best way to love us. This is the best way to save us. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, a particular gem there is why Christ didn't write a book. Yeah, right? that's, that's yeah, why? So people might wonder, well, you know, we have teaching from other people. Why didn't, why didn't Christ never write? Except for the... You know, of course, he has that John incident where he's writing the sand or something, and they get. But he erases it quickly, so maybe he decided I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna leave this forever. But he doesn't write anything down. Christ doesn't. Wouldn't it be great to have a, a the personal autobiography of Jesus or something? And it's all. You might want to well, why, why wouldn't you do that? And Thomas gives, I think, a, a good account of that. What does he, what does he say? Basically, he says like that Christ came to write on our hearts mm-hmm. in the sense that the we associate the old law with God's writing on tablets of stone, but the new law is the grace of the Holy Spirit poured into our hearts whereby we cry, Abba, Father. So Christ has come to renovate our interior life. And so the externals are supposed to mediate 
an interior revolution. And so Christ goes straight to the interior revolution. And there are other secondary considerations about like him writing a book and then uh, like probability of idolatry and then comparisons with Islam and things like that. Um, so we can leave those to the side well, I'd, or I'd, we can entertain them. Well, I wouldn't, I'm not, I'm not the Islam and idolatry. I don't know about that, but what's for me, at least from a philosophical perspective is Thomas goes right to uh, Socrates and he says the, uh, and the greatest teachers mm. uh, don't write books. The greatest yeah. teachers speak directly to their hearers because of course we don't have any, we don't have anything from Socrates. We just have Plato who writes down the dialogues um, and let's assume that Socrates is a real person and there's a whole historical Socrates discussion as well. But Plato takes his, his student takes down and writes this that Socrates just liked to talk to people and he thought that was an important mode of communication so that the highest things have to be shared by words alone in a conversation heart to heart you know yeah. ad, core ad core, lo- ad core locutor as, which is uh, St. John Henry Newman's um, one of his uh, I think that's his, one of his key phrases I think that's is that his Episcopal motto? Maybe I don't know I forget um, I think I think it is his Episcopal motto but there's something real about that right because when you want to talk to somebody, I've got something really important to say to you. Um, I'm going to text it, you know, or I want to get something really important to say to you. I will write it down on a piece of paper and give it to you. I mean, letters are super important, but when you have something you really want to share with someone or talk to seriously about someone with, it has to be done in person. And it's so, this is what Christ does. He wanders around and he talks to people and he gives the direct message to human beings, which is, I think it's a beautiful reflection there. What about... Um, Christ could have lived all sorts of lives. He could have been born as the son of an emperor. He could mm. have been uh, all sorts of things. But he's an itinerant preacher who wanders around. Um, he could have been someone who lived by himself, mm. a solitary life, right? He could have lived as a hermit or something. But Thomas thinks, no, no, he couldn't have done that, or he shouldn't have done that for salvation. Why is that? Well, I think, I mean, like a short answer is because Christ's salvation has like knowledge content. Okay, mm-hmm. so like Christus doesn't save us by magic, mm-hmm. or he doesn't just save us by imparting warm fuzzies over the airwaves, right? Christ saves us by the truth, right? So you will know the truth, you know, and the truth will set you free in the sense that we have minds and hearts, and both of those need to be trained on what is and turned from what is not in order for us to be fulfilled as human beings. And so Christ is the truth. He's truth incarnate. And so it's most conducive to his purposes to publish the truth abroad. So it makes most sense that he would adopt a, a kind of preaching ministry. Mm. And this is this is where we get into um, the famous, the motto of Dominicans, which is, of course, to contemplate and to share the fruits of contemplation. And people are like, oh, well, that's just a Dominican thing. But of course, we get that, at least according to Thomas, because that's the life of that Christ led. Yeah. Right? Thomas makes a pretty bold claim that basically Jesus was a Dominican. That's right. Um, so if Elijah can found the Carmelites, then Jesus can found the Dominicans. You're just going to have to deal with that, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, basically that the life that Christ adopted was the perfect contemplative life. Mm-hmm. Because St. Thomas makes the argument elsewhere in the Summa that it's better to illumine than merely to shine. And so the highest life is a contemplative life. Why is the highest life a contemplative life? Well, for a variety of reasons. But... Because a contemplative life trains our highest faculty on highest things, right? Because it's the life that most closely approximates the life of heaven, in which there will be nothing left um, to fix, right? But only realities left to ponder. Because it's most meritorious, right? Because it's most, you know, often, you know, it's like most charitable and fueled by the greatest love. Uh, because it most adequately reflects the life of God, who is himself a contemplative. So there are many reasons why the contemplative life is to be preferred. 
But St. Thomas adds that there's a particular species of the contemplative life, namely the apostolic life, which is greatest yet. And the reason he gives is because it's better to illumine than merely to shine. And so Christ models this life first, or Christ lives this life, and it's as a result of which that Dominicans attempt to live it in turn. Because Christ, um, one of my favorite renderings of contemplari et contemplata ali estradere, mm-hmm. is to contemplate and to give to others the contemplated things or the contemplated mm-hmm. one. So Christ gives us God as having been seen. So Christ gives us himself, but also he gives us his vision of the Father, which is ultimately what we want in salvation. It's like we were made towards the Father, but then by sin we lost our Godward gaze. And Christ, in his rapt gaze of the Father, affords us an entry into that same relationship. So by the preaching of Christ, we have an occasion, we have a very like sacramental graced experience to recover that Godward gaze that we've lost. And so, again, there you go, the shape of Christ's life is perfectly tailored to or perfectly um, conformed to his his saving designs. Yeah. And then, now, this is a part of of uh, St. Thomas's life of Jesus that doesn't meet, meet uh, its, well, it doesn't have any analog in contemporary, you could say, lives of Jesus, historical lives of Jesus, but I think he, it Christ doesn't just end his life after the resurrection. It's not like, the you know, his life on earth, and then he dies in the passion, and then he's raised, and then it's all good to go. But yeah. he has a beautiful ascension theology because Christ is still—he's still doing stuff, yeah. right? He's still—he's still working out that mission. And I, I like this aspect of, of the Christ is sitting on on the right hand of the Father, and active. He's active. He he actually uses imagery from, the old covenant, on Yom Kippur once a year, the Day of Atonement, the the high priest would go in, to offer incense on the uh, the mercy seat there, or the altar there. And there was a sense in which he went in on behalf of all of Israel. And then the Hebrew that's given, excuse me, the, the theology given in the letter to the Hebrew mm-hmm. speaks of Christ as the high priest who enters once for all into the sanctuary. Mm-hmm. And that sanctuary that we all await is the sanctuary of heaven. And so Christ goes in with our humanity to plead mm-hmm. before God on our behalf. That's like one of the, the main ways in which St. Thomas understands the ascension, mm-hmm. is that he presents our humanity before the Father, um, as a kind of sacrifice, which isn't to say that it's like destroyed or immolated, but it's changed in such a way that it is made pleasing to the God to whom it is offered. And so like Christ in the ascension, he's interceding on our behalf. He's also blazing a trail. Like the letter to the Hebrews speaks of him as the pioneer and perfecter of our mm-hmm. faith, you know, who like, who who runs the race set before us with a kind of exemplarity so that we who are to model our lives on his can follow in turn, that we have the courage to do so, that we have the wherewithal to do so, that we have the grace to do so. All of this is made active for us by his ascension. So like he'll talk about how his ascension is the cause of our ascension, mm-hmm. right? It's not just like the first, it's not just the first fruits, but that it's like when he talks, well, when St. Paul talks about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, what's the order of resurrection? It's Christ the first fruits and then all those who belong to him. Mm-hmm. It's like somehow because we're tethered to him, he draws us up into heaven in his wake. And the ascension serves precisely that purpose. Yeah, and so, and right after, of course, after the ascension, we start talking about the sacraments. And the sacraments are, shorthand, we always talk about their applied Christology. So taking the, the things of Christ and then it's his continual presence and work in this. So... You start with this, the Tertia Pars, you start with the kind of heavy theological reflections on the Incarnation, the hypostatic union, all this stuff that's strictly usually theological. And then you get almost an historical reflection on, on Christ's existence and his continuing existence. And then you get the kind of fusion of them in a way, I guess, in the sacraments where you have the theological meeting the historical. But overall, it's a, I think Thomas's 
beautifully organizes reflections on Christ, Jesus Christ, and explicitly that, not Jesus of history versus Christ of faith, but Jesus Christ, the God-man who walked around amongst us and still exists in his church today and rules at the right hand of the Father and is going to come again as we've celebrated in Advent and, of course, Christmas, first and second coming. So there's no separation, I think, that uh, between faith and history, but it's entirely incarnational and that the life of Jesus provides fruit for reflection on who we are and how we're to be saved. Every part of, of Christ's existence um, is, is in there. So I think it's a beautiful beautiful reminder that we, we as Catholics don't need to be either or people, but both and, that we take the, the life of Christ and historical reality seriously, but we do so because of the union with God, that Christ, of course, is the first and, uh, and, and the key analog to all of that with the Incarnation. So next time someone tells you that the historical Jesus and, uh, and the Christ of faith are two different people, just don't rip it out of the Summa, but just hand them the, the Tertia Pars and say, let's just read this together. There are some really, there's some really great stuff to think about this. Dig. So um, we will see you back next week with the Godsplaining. And this is Father Bonaventure and Father Gregory Pine wishing you a very blessed uh, new year and a time of grace with Jesus Christ, uh, true God, true man of history and of faith. Thanks for listening to Godsplaining a work of the Dominican Friars of the Province of St. Joseph. Visit us at opeast.org.